Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Second World War pilot Robert Binzer left a memoir of his flying experience as an aviator in the CBI theatre of war. But what was the CBI theatre? Well, Robert was deployed with the 14th Air Force between 1943 and 45, And during that time he flew critically needed weapons, supplies and soldiers behind enemy lines into the CBI theatre. That was China, Burma, India. He crossed the Himalayan mountains daily, sometimes twice a day. This is the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and I'm joined by Robert's daughter, Rainey, to reveal his rare first-person account of his experience during the Second World War and his narrow escapes from death. Hi, Rainey. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Not a problem at all. I'm really excited to touch upon this history and the history of the Second World War in the CBI theatre because it's not something that we've touched upon before and it's great to hear this from your own family history's perspective but also from, I guess, the words of your own father, Robert Binzer, who you've been working through his diaries and, and, and creating this new study into the area. But before we go into all of that, I suppose, could you tell us what the CBI theatre of World War II was? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, of course, CBI stands for China, Burma, India. As we can see what's happening even today in the Ukraine and what happened in Afghanistan, getting supplies to the front to keep the troops fighting is a huge problem in any war. I'm sure it always has been. And so the CBI theater during the Second World War, at first America was not involved in China until Japan came aggressing very much, taking territory. Even at that time, we did not commit to defending China against Japan aggressors, but we sent Chenault over and he started the Flying Tigers because the Japanese were beating, basically, the Chinese very badly. And then Chenault came in and kind of showed them how you could win with air power. So that was sort of how it began. Of course, after Pearl Harbor, we did commit to China, and Roosevelt committed money to build airfields, and Chenault and Chiang Kai-shek's wife convinced him 
to send troops as well to support China in the effort against Japan. So that's how it started. How the CBI started was there was a little problem, you know, it's even further away from America than Europe. And so supplying our troops and building airfields, how are we going to get that over there? So at the time, the Lido Trail, and of course the RAF was very involved, and our British troops and allies were very involved in helping getting supplies in going up the Lido Trail. Stillwell was on that part. He was one of our American generals. So when that was closed off by the Japanese, they had to find a new way. And there was actually one very daring pilot, Colonel Caleb Haynes, who actually was involved in the Doolittle Raid. And he was the first person to show General Chenault that this new idea of air power could work. And he actually flew gas into China. The plan was after the Doolittle Raid attacked Tokyo, they would meet up further into China and he would have already had the gasoline there and then they would get away. But unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. However, he did successfully get the gasoline into China. And that convinced our powers that be that this was a good idea. So they then committed the first forces to do an air supply route to China. There were many problems, though. Guess what? There were only about three airfields, which actually had been built by the British near tea plantations. I was going to ask this, Rainey, because surely they would have had to build an entire new element of military infrastructure to make sure these much bigger planes as they were, which were flying much greater distances, could take off and land at various points in China. That's a monumental effort. It was a huge effort, and the Chinese people were very instrumental. The way it worked out was President Roosevelt committed the money and also said he would supply the personnel But the Chinese, Chiang Kai-shek's Chinese Nationalist Army and the people there agreed that they would build the airfields. And so they did. And that in itself is an incredible story, the building of the many airfields and airstrips in China, which were built by the Chinese farmers and peasants by hand using Stone Age tools. There are wonderful pictures And actually on YouTube, you can find some fantastic videotapes that talk about and show how it was built. And so they did that. And then they started bringing our guys over. Haynes really started this in 1942. So this was all going on at the same time. And this theater of war was much smaller. We had most of our efforts focused in Europe, of course, and further in the Pacific So they did commit quite a large number of men to go over there. There were many problems. There were weather problems. There were dysentery and malaria. There was the problem of not having anywhere to land. There were huge problems with getting gasoline to fly the planes. That was a constant problem for the men. There were just so many problems, not to mention that the Japanese were constantly attacking them. And we actually went through, there were six different commanders sent over by the army during the four years of war that tried to manage all this. And it must have been very, very difficult. That's all I can say. But they did it. 
I mean, to say it's not an easy task, I think, is one of the biggest understatements that I have heard this week, Rainey, because we'll go into some of the details and the challenges they faced. And we'll do this through the eyes of your own father, Robert Binzer, who was a combat transport pilot who was flying missions for the 14th Air Force. So tell us, when did your father get involved in the CBI theatre? He got involved almost as soon after Pearl Harbor. He had enlisted into the Army when he was 18. It was very obvious that America would eventually be involved in this war. So he wanted to fly. He had always dreamed of flying. As a little boy, he climbed trees to try and see airplanes at Miggs Field. So he signed up to be a pilot only to be assigned to be like a teletype repair technician When Pearl Harbor happened, he said they told him to get up and get that machine going and not to turn it off for two weeks. I think they didn't sleep. They just sent teletypes. But after Pearl Harbor, they realized how many more pilots they needed. So he went as accepted and sent into training. He assumed he'd be going to Europe. But he said during his training, it became clear to him as he was not being trained on bombers that he was not going to Europe and um, he would be working somewhere else. So when they got ready to go, they told him, you're going to Kunming, China. He originally joined the 19th Liaison Squadron, which was an observer squadron. And they also flew and did sort of observe submarines. And they did some light transport and evac. And that was quite an adventure because they flew smaller aircraft. He flew a Stinson L5 was the one he likes, but they flew a lot of different small aircraft. They were almost like bush pilots. They could fly low and small. And he went into a lot of jungle airstrips and he talks about them as being almost what you might think of as today being a a dirt driveway or a path through the jungle. So he did that and he had some pretty amazing adventures. He would transport some of our troops to the front and bring out wounded soldiers and wounded officers. And then he crashed. He crashed because the airstrips that had been built by the Chinese, even though we did give them standards, our engineers gave them standards for how to build them. You know, a lot of them were just too close to mountains and um, he broke his back, but he recovered in China. He said in a mud walled straw hut, And while he was there, he decided he wanted to fly something bigger and he wanted to do more for the war. So he volunteered for the 14th Air Force for the 27th Troop Carrier Squadron, which was one of many. A lot of the outfits had their own transport squadrons, but there were so many changes going on. As I mentioned, there were six different commanders and they kept, it was like a chess game. They'd move all the pieces around and all the troops around and go, well, let's try this. So the 27th, he started flying C-46s and C-47s, and they were the big planes that we know. These are the big transporter planes, aren't they? The big transport planes, yeah. Okay, so is it at this point that he becomes what's known as a hump pilot? Correct. All right, what is a hump pilot? Because this is such a neglected part of Second World War history that I know that our listeners are going to be fascinated with. Well, the China hump was actually the Himalayan mountains. So quite a big hump. It's a pretty big hump. Um, It is known as some of the most dangerous flying routes in the world in existence because of the weather patterns. The mountains are so large, they have their own weather patterns. 
on one side it's jungle and on the other and then you go into the mountains and it's snowing and it's winter and then on the other side you're going from Assam in India over to Kunming China was Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Army headquarters were there they also went to the end of the Lido Road that was the old supply route where the Lido Road ended um they had set up of course a lot of warehouses and things there for overground transport but they had to make use of those so they flew all over there were two routes over the hump the hump was very dangerous the high route was physically a shorter route but it was much more dangerous and the low route came down and around the southern end of the mountains it took longer though and the problem with that was gasoline They were always always short of gasoline and there was no room for not getting there on time. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment and would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from History Hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now, 
Now, I'm really keen to get into the day-to-day life of what it was like being a hump pilot. Your father was a pilot. His plane was the Able Queen. So tell us, what was a, a daily life like? How many people were involved in piloting and running these planes? How many were in the crew? What time would they get up? How many missions would they be able to do in a day or a week? What sort of challenges did they face as they went over the Himalayas, which are known as the world's third pole? You've got the North Pole, the South Pole, and the Third Pole, which is the Himalayas, because it's just so cold and such varied weather. You can have many different types of weather and storms all in one day, much like you can in the Arctic or the Antarctic. So I definitely do not envy him in having to fly in those conditions. He must have been a truly talented pilot. But take us through that day-to-day life, Rainy. Well, the day-to-day life was anything but glamorous, okay? They were living in primitive conditions, really, uh, which were built, depending on where they were, they were all over China. And in some of the places, it wasn't so bad. Some of the airfields that had maybe already existed, been built by the RAF, and they were on tea plantations, and they actually had sort of little houses they lived in or little huts. And Kunming was also not so bad because it had been built for the nationalist troops. The food was, they either, if they were out in some of the more remote regions, they only had K rations and C rations that the transport pilots brought in. But the local women cooked for them a lot of times. They would hire them. And the language barrier can't be overlooked. The language barrier was huge. But the Chinese people were very willing to help them, the farmers and peasants, because they were there to defend them. And so they would work for just a few pennies. They would do a lot of the physical manual labor. He said it was sort of like, I guess this is what most were, is like you're either laying around on your sleeping bag in a straw hut, bored out of your mind, it's hot or it's monsoon, or else you have a mission and you start flying and you have all these conditions. So I think some of what they didn't know then, those young men and a few women, but mostly men, maybe saved them from being so scared. They didn't know a lot of stuff. They didn't really know about the jet stream too much then. They knew that they would face winds, but they didn't have what we know as radar They didn't have autopilot. They didn't have any of those things. They had to map everything by hand and they just took off and started out and they met what they met. There were no early warning systems. It was also very dangerous because of the Japanese zero fighters that tracked them because as we know in, as we're seeing today, the goal is to get the people bringing the supplies in. Those are the ones that are going to bring the ammunition. As far as loading the plane, the pilots were very important. They didn't want them to get hurt because they had so few pilots and so many pilots died. So they didn't really have to do the loading, but a crew would look like, depending again on where you were, because some of the airfields were tiny, tiny strips and there would only be working with local Chinese people that would load the planes, load all the stuff on. But in a little larger airfield, you had loaders, you had troops whose jobs was just to load the plane and balance it and get the weight right because they carried huge amounts of supplies. They carried 
barrels of cement to build new airfields. And some would weigh 800 pounds and they would be loaded with those in one part. They carried gasoline. Sometimes they would carry like Jeeps. A few times they carried animals. They would carry munitions. They would carry whatever. They would carry food. And sometimes they would transport people in and out. They never knew what was loaded, but there were loaders and there were people who figured out sort of how to balance all this in the plane because balance was everything. Then their crew was small. Um, they, they were not armed. They did not carry guns. That was pretty scary, I guess. But there was always a pilot, a co-pilot. There was a radio operator and there was a navigator. And that was pretty much it. Once the plane got loaded, they took off and they were on their own. As far as communications, they didn't have modern communications. So a lot of times they just couldn't get a signal. There would be these like ground to earth transmitters from an air base. They would send up a signal and as the plane flew over, they would get it and they would know if their bearings were right. But most of the time they were just kind of on their own. The maps that they were given I've studied a lot of the maps, and I don't know how anyone could read them. They were sort of hand-drawn, just vague, you know, like, well, go this way and then go that way and fly over this. There was none of the precision equipment or knowledge that we have today. So it was, it was a hard life for them. I think they were probably hungry all the time in case they had to bail out. They were given blood shits because of the communication barrier. It can be very dangerous. There is, in fact, one very famous British pilot who bailed out, and there were natives in the mountains. There were natives that had come from the Laos. And when our pilots bailed out, often they thought that they were gifts from God, and they would capture them and keep them as slaves to work there. And one particular pilot, he's called the blonde-haired, blue-eyed slave of Liang Shen, he never got away. So they were very afraid of that. They were very afraid of bailing out and be captured by the natives. They were afraid of the Japanese zero fighters uh, shooting them down. And then their big enemy was the weather. The weather was completely unpredictable. And also the height of the mountains, because those C-46s and C-47s, I think 22,000 was about their total ceiling. And some of those mountains were 18,000, you know, even 20,000 feet high. So they really just could make it over the top and they would be worrying about gasoline and they weren't exactly sure where they were. They thought they knew they had some bearings and then they would get there and their supplies would be unloaded. And then they often had to just load it back up and go right back. So they did multiple missions a day. My father kept his logbook, and it's pretty interesting. He flew a total of 312 missions, I think. 625 hours. So that was a lot. You know, they would do at least two missions a day, sometimes three. It really depended on what the needs were. And I think morale was low sometimes, but they did whatever they had to do. And so is this the reason why it was called the Aluminium Trail? And for our North American listeners, of course, I'll say that again, known as the Aluminium Trail. Is it because there were so many planes that would drop out of the sky for various reasons, leaving a trail of destruction along that route? Yes, absolutely. They said that they didn't really need a map. They would just look down and follow the planes, the crashed planes. There were so many of them. 
And so it was extremely dangerous. It was, it was pretty much you were out there on your own and you just had to get your supplies over the hump. And that's the way it was. It was just, it was interesting to me when I read all of their writings, none of them really expressed very much fear. They were just dealing with what they had to do to win this war. They sometimes interacted with their British counterparts, and there were people from Australia, I think he met there sometime. Everyone was kind of working together under these incredibly difficult life circumstances. There was a lot of disease, too. There was a lot of dysentery. There was malaria. There were snakes. I think that they thought it sounded romantic when they went there, but they got more than they bargained for. Absolutely. And as I was looking through the book, I know you say that your father was always eager to share his flying stories and that he started to write them down in the 1970s. As, as, a, as a child and growing up with these stories, which have stuck out the most for you over the years? Well, of course, the sort of story that he's famous for is the story of his bailout. When they did run out of gas at one point, they were flying back on the low hump route and they just completely ran out of gas. They were caught in the jet stream and they didn't even really know what the jet stream was back then. It's hard to imagine, but this was pretty much the early days of combat flight, certainly. And they were sort of, you know, learning as they went. And I'm sure that our brave pilots today have learned a lot, learned a lot of lessons from them, but they didn't know why they kept flying and flying and flying and they weren't getting anywhere. And finally they just ran out of gas and they had to, abandoned the able queen and that made him so sad because he loved that plane and so his his story is about survival really the story that he left is about how they landed and found each other and somehow managed to communicate with the natives and found their way to the chinese nationalist army and rode through the mountains in coal-powered trucks one of the crew was lost when they realized they had to bail out, none of them wanted to go. They were all sitting there with their parachutes on and the plane was getting lower and lower. And dad was the commander. So he finally said, well, somebody's got to go. And all of a sudden, George just got up and ran out the door and jumped, which is not how you bail out. And his parachute tore in the process. So they were all so upset. Dad said, he said, now make sure, you know, you count to three or whatever before you pull the ripcord. Don't pull it too soon. So they had to get an entire village to search for George. But he was found, and he had been found by a, a local family who took him home and put him to bed with them. And so he, he didn't know what to do. He ate dinner with them, and he slept with them, and then they brought him to the village, and uh, he was found. So they were very glad of that. None of them seemed to be injured. He said he remembered to cross his legs before he landed because that's what they had been taught, you know, in case you come down on a fence or in a tree. And they were very afraid, but it was quite, it took them a week and a half, a couple of weeks to get back to their base. And when he got back, they thought he was dead and they had taken all his stuff. So he had to go around and get his stuff back. But that was his favorite story. But he has some other exciting stories that he always told he was involved on the Salween front, supplying them and flying up the Yangtze a lot, which is a river that kind of cuts through China in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. And that was their guide. And once he got caught in a secret cable trap that the Chinese had set up. What's a cable trap? 
Well, they hadn't told anybody, but there's this one easy route that went by the Yangtze River and Japanese Zero fighters were using it. And so they strung a cable all the way across the river, high enough that a plane taking off or landing or flying low would get caught and it caught them. Uh, it was a forced landing. And then they had to wait. We were talking about the aluminum trail, about all of the crashed aircraft that was along the way. A lot of times, actually, we had other crews, too, there. We had not just people flying the planes. We had repair crews, mechanics, you know, who kept those planes running because it was not great conditions for planes to be in with all the humidity, the rain, the mud, all that stuff. They sent in a crew, and they, they would scavenge our own crash planes for parts. A lot of times, that's how hard parts were to get. So they scavenged some parts and brought some parts and got the plane flying and they took off again. But at the same time, the native people also thought the planes were a gift from their gods and they would sort of have to negotiate with the natives over the crashed plane parts because for them, it was like, imagine, you know, if you only have straw and suddenly you get a piece of aluminum, they built huts out of them and things. And so it was... It was really interesting how they did all that. He told that story a lot, but he was always the center of attention at any sort of barbecue or function. Guys would stand around and it would always end up that way. The women were in the kitchen, you know, cooking, and the men were all outside gathered around my dad and he was telling his stories. Well, I really wish I could have been at one of those cookouts listening to your dad tell his World War II stories. But we get to hear all of those or read about all of those thanks to your new book. So tell us the title and where we can get it. It's The Able Queen, Memoirs of an Indiana Hump Pilot Lost in the Himalayas. It's a new version and it's out in the beginning of May. And it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your usual sources like that. And uh, anyone who's interested in aviation or wants to learn about a hidden corner of World War II will seem to really enjoy it, I think. Rainy, thank you so much. We'll pop a link into our show notes. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.